Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey, and I'm joined today, and as always, with my friend and business partner, Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. Say hello, Jason. Hello. Good to be back for episode number two. Number two. It's nice to be happy about number two, episode number two. We did it. Uh, so in One Nation Under Whiskey podcast, uh, it is a podcast that where we will discuss everything that it is, what we do. So Jason, if you wouldn't mind taking people through what it is, what we do. Everything what it is that we do <laughs> is. We're in a competition to have the most awkward sentence here. I think I'd win, I think I'd win every time. Hands down. Um, what do we do? Uh, in 2011, we started an independent bottling company. That's been going tickety-boo. We started a whiskey festival called Whiskey Jubilee in New York, Chicago, and Seattle. And we lead Whiskey Geek Tours of Scotland, which takes up a nice little part of our spring and summer. Can you remind people what the name of our independent bottling company is? I don't think you mentioned is, it. Is it called Single Cast Nation? That. Is it. You nailed it. So you might have had the most awkward sentence. I may have had the most awkward introduction. <laughs> I think this will go on ad infinitum. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> uh, today in our podcast, uh, we're delighted to, to have interviewed uh, Mr. Brian Davis of Lost Spirits Distillery. Um, I actually spent a good hour with him on Skype discussing many, many things. Now, we won't be able to bring the entire hour of that conversation to the podcast. However, Jason, I think you'll agree there are some nuggets in here where we're we're discussing some fun slash nerdy things. Absolutely. It's during the week uh, after our first podcast came out, we got a message from a, a whiskey friend in Sweden Mm. Describing us as fun and nerdy. <laughs> Music to our ears. And I think this week, uh, to give him his full name, Brian the Mad Scientist Davis, <laughs> will absolutely resonate with fun and nerdiness. I love that those two things can be combined together. Fun and nerdiness. That's just our modern society right now, right? Well, and the fact that people could pick up on it in our podcast, yeah. uh, I was I was really excited when those words came back in. Uh, it shows that we're successfully getting across our message that whiskey doesn't need to be snobby. It doesn't need to have to be <laughs> awkward sentence while you're right there. It doesn't need to be uh, higher class. You, you can have fun. You can totally get into the details of it, still have a blast exploring it. So, yeah, I think we're right on. Yeah, as you're saying that, it, it it gets me to thinking about what we do when we're doing tastings. When when people think of whiskey, people maybe how should I say this? When people who awkward. don't really awkward, I should say it awkwardly. <laughs> when when people think of whiskey who really aren't into whiskey, they think of. Old guys in suits, leather chairs, you know, a study, mahogany wood, you know, wood tables, things like that, a general stuffiness. But when you and I are running a seminar, we're wearing a bowling shirt and jeans and maybe a pair of nice shoes, our appearance just up front is whiskey's fun. We're not dressed up in a nice suit. We're not... You know, let's let's have fun. Let's enjoy what we're about to talk about. Let's enjoy what we're about to taste. Um, One of the most exciting things for me is at the end of a tasting when someone who's maybe attended their first tasting comes up and says, wow, that was really fun. And I learned a lot. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we, we can have fun doing this. That's perfectly fine. And we can learn a lot yeah. while we're having that fun. So I think this week's interview fits that mold very nicely. Yeah. Which is funny, because he's a guy who doesn't fit a lot of molds. Well, it's not that he doesn't fit a lot of molds. It's I think he's he's created his own mold or molds. He's, he's doing things that, that no one else has. So just uh, 
just as a, a bit of a brief introduction to Brian Davis and, and Lost Spirits Distillery, uh, he, he got his start actually before whiskey and before rum, which is, you know, part of what we'll discuss today. Um, he got a start in Spain. He was doing uh, an absinthe distillery in Spain. Uh, him and his him and his partner Joanna, and then they moved out to California to start their their own distillery. And he wanted to focus on heavily peated single malt whiskeys. And, and getting back to uh, breaking molds or creating his own mold. This is a guy who built a distillery outside. The still was outside rather than... What's that? From a material that's not always used. Right? So so you've got... You have a still that's out in nature and the bottom part of the... So everybody, if, if you know distilling, you know that Generally speaking, if we're talking about single malt, you've got a copper pot still. It looks like an onion with the scallion parts coming out, and they hang at the end. That's your line arm, right? So a, a big copper onion. His still was an enormous oak cask topped off with a, a giant copper dragon <laughs> that, that, the, that the spirit would come off of. You know, in speaking with him, you know, and this was years back when he first started it, he had found, he had done research and he had found that sometime in the, I'm just going to pull a number out of the air, okay? Sometime in the 1800s, he found um, history of, of someone creating a still out of the same thing, a combination of oak and copper. And so while he's doing something that is completely unheard of now, it's something that there was actually documentation of way back when. Yeah, that's one thing that you'll never get past Brian Davis. The dude does his research. He knows exactly what he's talking about every time you speak with him. Uh, it's always been one of the things I've been very impressed by with him. Yeah. So he's now um, he's moving his distillery. Uh, it was up in... Um, Northern California, and he's now moving his distillery to L.A., to L.A. proper, to be exact. Um, now, distilling hasn't started there yet, uh, so anything that's coming out now, there's some new products. Abomination is a new product for him in, in some of his rums, but that's still either stuff that's his rums that have come off of his still, the Big Dragon still, or the Abomination which is basically he's gotten some Isla whiskey and he's put it through his reactor um, to, to help mature it. Now, in our conversation, we didn't get into the nitty-gritty of what the reactor is. Do you have any input, insight into that, Jason? Um, in talking with him, just to go back just a little, a little bit here, um, I think it would have been spring of 2015, uh, I think I got that year right. Yeah, 20, spring of 2015. Uh, a number of people would come up to me at my tastings or drop me an email and say, "Have you heard about this guy in California who can who's who claims?" Let, let's use that word mm. for spring of 2015. There's a guy in California who claims he can make mature whiskey in the space of a few days, uh, maybe a week. And uh, what do you think? And, and my response to everybody was exactly the same. If this was anybody bar Brian Davis, I would think they were talking absolute nonsense. And because it's Brian Davis, I'm willing to listen to him. <laughs> I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, then uh, cut to uh, the fall, the fall of that year, actually the end of the summer of that year, I'm sorry. Uh, it would have been August. I was in LA and I actually tasted some of the rye that had gone through the reactor. And all he did was, we were at a festival pouring side by side and he handed me a glass and he said, give it a taste, tell me what you think. And I gave it a nose, nice spice, nice wood. Checked the color, good dark color on it. Tasted it, oh, really developed rye flavors. Really nice complimentary wood flavors. 
what is this, Brian? And he says, oh, that, that's some of the first rye that went through the reactor. Hmm. <laughs> so hmm. that's, that's <laughs> phenomenal. It's absolutely <laughs> phenomenal. And, and then just standing side by side at the festival, I said, so, so, so tell me a little bit about this reactor. Uh, and he said, okay, without getting into the nitty gritty of it, when wood breaks down during extended maturation, mm-hmm. that's where your mature flavors come from. It's that breaking down of the wood with the spirit. Right. It's like, right. And then there's things like esterification and, and other words that biochemists would, uh, would get excited about. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he says, but if we can get that breakdown to happen faster, we'll have mature tasting spirit in less time. So you sent me, you sent me some samples. I've got um, two different abominations mm-hmm. and then a rum. And so, so you've got stills, but you also have your reactors. Yeah. And so first off, tell me, tell me how the, the stills work in conjunction with the reactors or, or are you. So the barrel house in effect, right? Um, So the stills work just like stills anywhere else. Yeah. And then the reactors work just like barrels anywhere else, except more interesting. Um, Yeah. Maybe that's not true. Different. (laughs) Yeah. uh, but yeah, so there's basically a room full of the reactors running, um, and then there's the, all of the rest of the stuff, which is like any other distillery, just mm-hmm. kind of more strange. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so uh, yeah, I mean, you basically collect your white spirit finished from the stills, and then load it into the reactors with wood um, for the next stage after that. Um, okay, and and are you? So with your stills, are you are you just bringing? Because I'm looking at the labels. So, so the the abominations are actually Islas that we went and bought. Okay. Um, and then brought back, and, and then messed with. Um, uh, okay. The okay. Uh, <laughs> the uh, whereas the rums we're making from scratch. So we didn't build out the distillery to produce whiskey from scratch. We built it to produce rum from scratch. Um, for now, we're buying the whiskeys. And then we've, if this all works correctly, we've got our eyes on the building next door. So that'll be your, your whiskey distillery. So what you've built now is a rum distillery. Plus a larger research lab okay. and a larger um, area for the reactors and enough electricity to run a whole bunch of them. Because that was the other problem with the small distillery up north is that there's only enough electricity to run one of them before yeah. you, uh, you fry the lines coming in. So right now, any everything coming off the stills—that's that's rum, right? Okay. So you sent me a new navy style rum, and I think that you had a previous naval navy style rum. Yes. It was also sixty-one percent alcohol. So sixty-eight. Sixty-eight. Yeah. So now this is sixty-one, mm-hmm. and the difference is being a, it's not coming. Uh, the distillate isn't coming out of a dragon skull up in oh, uh, dragon skulls on everything still oh nice okay so it's so but but it's, but it's a new still it's a new still yeah okay so let me let me walk you back a little bit so we're still waiting for our federal permit on the new distillery okay so all the juice is still being made in our old one until our federal permit drops oh, okay so expecting okay. to get any day now but they've been lagging it's been like four months while we've been waiting yeah, yeah, yeah. okay the uh so the the distillate from that came off of the old distillery in fact it's actually the exact same distillate as of the traditional Navy 68 used to me. Okay. The, um, the difference is that when we developed the original Navy, we had just figured out how to break the polymers and the wood up. Mm-hmm. We hadn't figured out how to control the process at all. Um, it, and so it produced like a, a, a super smoky um, but thinner distillate than sort of nature would have done in a barrel. Yeah. It finally got to the colonial was when we had actually matched a real like normal chemical signature. So this was taking the technology from the Colonial and then bringing it back and reappropriating it to the original Navy distillate. So, uh, where are those where are those phenols coming from? Where is that smokiness? Wood. It's just from the wood. Well, no, actually, it's from the wood and it's from the molasses. Uh, so we found a molasses supplier that had a high phenolic content to the molasses. Yeah. 
um, without having a high anisole content, which was the biggest problem you'd run into because you can convert phenols into anisoles pretty easily, mm-hmm. and anisoles taste like licorice. Okay. Yep. So what you usually find when you get high phenol molasses was you'd get high anisole as well. Yeah. So you'd end up getting like this nice, rich, big, like licorice flavored rum. Yeah. Which was really what we wanted. Yeah. So we went shopping for a, a lower anisole content to phenol ratio, um, but with the high phenol content. We found one supplier that had that trait. Wow. So you get a layer of phenols in the molasses themselves, much yeah. like you've been smoked um, grain and scotch, just different phenols. Mm-hmm. And then you get the charred wood uh, contributes a whole bunch too. And, and that's new charred wood. Is, so, okay, that, that was going to be my question. So it contributes a lot that way too. The color on it is is probably as dark as the original molasses <laughs> being used, and and all of that is just because it's going it's going through the reactor, and it's and these brand new wood with nothing done to it to pull any of it out because we wanted to capture all of the woody character, but with that you end up capturing all of the color, which yeah. is probably I could use to lighten that by about thirty percent and be very happy about it if I could figure out how to do it. But I like the way it tasted, so I just went screw it. I don't know if we want to get into it right now, but it starts to raise the question of what is a mature whiskey, right? What <laughs> is age spirit? It, for me, it gets quite philosophical. Um, well, it, not just philosophical, but I mean, there there are legalities applied to the, especially if if we're taking this to Scotland. You know, if he were to bring one of his reactors to Scotland and put it next to the Mortlock Distillery and copy what they're doing inside of a reactor, and it will probably taste really good because what he makes t- tastes really good, the SWA, Scotch Whiskey Association, would say, well, that's, that's not three years in a day in an oak cask. It's not even in an oak cask. Indeed. Indeed. Um you know, then again, you and I are not here to discuss legalities, but but <laughs> uh, but, but, but you do yeah. run into that where, and <clears throat> there's actually a Wired article about Brian Davis that came out April of 2015, and I, I normally try and avoid comment sections on online articles, but given the topic, I, I delved into it, and it's interesting to see there's. There's generally speaking two camps of people. There's the camp that says old tasting whiskey must have been in wood for X number of years, 18 years, 21 years, 25 years. That's the major stipulation. And then there's a second camp who comes out and says, I want whiskey to taste the best it can taste. And I think Brian is in that camp as well. Yeah. Where we're just looking to measure good whiskey as good whiskey or good brown spirits as good brown spirits. And I think for for that first camp, they feel cheated when that spirit hasn't been in wood for the, the right, in their mind, number of years whereas yeah it's not enough for the argument for them to simply be but it's good juice taste it yeah well this has got all the qualities yeah. you really like in whiskey look at our friend the malt maniacs and the malt maniac awards right if it's deep dark burgundy and tastes like you're licking a stick Major thumbs up. Yeah. Right? Brian can do that in six days. Is that going to get a thumbs up from the deep, dark, burgundy, licking a stick crowd? Potentially. And I say potentially because yeah, up until there was Cavalan, it was old Glendronachs, old Glenfarclasses, Glenfarclas I? I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. You name it, it was old first fill sherry matured whiskey. Then Cavalan comes around, and I think this year the, the Malt Maniacs gave more awards to Cavalan than, than any other distillery, and that juice is 
three, five, six years old, you know, somewhere around there. So potentially. Uh, That's a good way to, to start thinking about moving the marker, hmm. right? Where I think, and again, having glanced at comments and spoken with people about this as I've been out and about, there's a sense that whiskey made in a lab will never be as good as whiskey made according to quote-unquote natural techniques. Yeah. Well, first off, where, where's the romance in that? Right? Exactly, exactly. Well, if you're a scientist, it's, I think you could find it very romantic. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that is a good point. It gets me back to our conversation from the first, from the first episode where we, when we were discussing various misconceptions, and there was that idea that we as independent bottlers are out there seeking, you know, with a torch looking for that special cask, and there's that romanticism attached to that. There's a romanticism yeah. attached to a forty-year-old bottle of Glenfarclas. For sure. Well, and and to be honest. I'm willing to concede that that I experience part of that. When I get an older whiskey, I go back to what was happening at that time. Mm, what yeah. was the world like when that spirit went into cask? Yeah. What were the lives of the still men and the warehouse men? What were they like at that time? And and so there there is this historical component to older whiskeys, um, whether, whether it's romantic or not we, we can have that conversation another day but it is certainly historical there is that component and maybe bypassing that history makes some people very uncomfortable yeah. in fact we know it makes some people uncomfortable there's also someone in the comments was talking about um there's a there's a reason they've stopped tasting uh, wines blind because the cheap hooch kept winning right <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, there's the, there's the the corollary, a word I Ooh, always. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Uh, there's a corollary with Californian wines in the 1970s mm -hmm. uh, and into the 1980s, where nobody in the wine world thought they would ever be as good as French wines from the same grapes. Yeah. And lo and behold. They started winning competitions, <laughs> right? And here we have very knowingly an older whiskey and the romance and the respect of an older whiskey up against Brian's mad scientist reactor whiskey. Yeah. Um, and he's, again, for those two groups, there's that group where he's running up against those who don't want to give it the time of day. Yeah. Because it's radically different. Getting back to that, those two groups of people. If you if you're in Brian's camp, and here I am, I'm making whiskey or rum that tastes really good, and you have the group of people that say, "Forget how it's made. Does it taste good?" And now me, me, I'm I'm a traditionalist, and and I I like seeing that age statement, even if it's three years old. I'm totally cool with that. Um, that doesn't mean I'm I'm knocking what Brian does. What Brian does, he's making fantastic juice, and and I'm not afraid of it. I'm still I'm still a bit of a, a <laughs> traditionalist, but when I think about his rums now now rum as much as I love rum. I'm less attached to rum, you know, as compared to whiskey. I'm less attached to rum. So I am very, very, very comfortable in saying when I taste Brian Davis's rum, it is some of the best that I've ever had. And I've had, you know, your, your standard off-the-shelf stuff, uh, you know, your Eldorados, 12, 15, you know, 21, what have you. I've had some of the single cast stuff that Murray McDavid had put out. Um, there's some really nice rums that, that are being put out by independent bottlers. But this rum is absolutely magnificent. It's as dark as the molasses used to make it. And it tastes like it's 20, 30 years old. 
and it's gorgeous and insanely complex. When you had first sent me rum samples and you were com- you were remaining completely stum about any of your reactors <laughs> and you had been you'd been in production with your distillery I think at that time Four years, five years, somewhere around that? So we started building it at the end of 2009. I think we released the first product in 2012. But then you sent me... The run would have been 2014, early 2014. Okay, so so this is is me thinking that you had laid down rum for four or five years or so. And so I got the (laughs) rum, and I'm thinking, first off, and I told you this before, this is some of the best rum that I've ever had, period, end of story. It's absolutely fantastic. Thanks, man. Yeah. In listening to Brian, he certainly talks about the craft industry, and he talks about trying to get the best craft whiskey he can out into the marketplace. I think if you talk to craft producers across the U.S. and and certainly across Europe uh, and Australia, everywhere they're making craft uh, whiskey, I think if you talk to them, I I think they're all saying the same thing, right? We're trying to make the best juice that we can. I don't think there's anything radical about that. And one of the conversations you and I have been having for the better part of a decade now is that it was always a shame that craft whiskey came out as whiskey, right? If it had come out as craft something else, I think people would have had fewer biases Mm. and been more willing to try it and more willing to experiment with it. I think the craft industry had to get over uh, a very large hump of bias. Um, And I I look at my whiskeys on on my shelf here and I I love dipping into craft whiskey. Oh yeah, that tastes like that producer and oh, that tastes like that raw ingredient and Oh, yeah, I remember the region where I experienced that. And and those are all to the fore. Um, it doesn't have to be, oh, this is probably three months old. Mm. Or, oh, this is probably two years old. It's just, there's good hooch in this bottle. And I enjoy drinking it. And I think that is Brian's market at, as much today as it was when he first came into Brown Spirits uh, around 2012. I agree. The only difference is... And this is not me knocking the craft whiskey industry. That that's a whole other rabbit hole we can get down. The, the the word craft is such a loaded word. But the difference is being your typical, you know, Joe Schmo's distillery, okay? Whoever it is. They they lay down whiskey, they're buying um ten gallon casks, they're putting it in the cask for six months, it comes out, you know what you're gonna get. I'm not, and I use this term a lot, I'm not knocking, but I'm not um, trying to say bad things about the whiskey. You just know what you're going to get. What Brian's able to do is in six days create something that actually would take a craft producer or, or any producer would take them. Any producer, yeah. Yeah, 10 to 12 to 15 years to produce. And he can actually do it in, in six days. And get it really damn close to what you'd expect in that older whiskey. So, so yes, he is in that camp of of a craft producer. But what he's able to do is uh, uh, he stands alone. Again, he's that's his own mold. That's exactly what he's done. He's created his own mold. But getting back to flavor, um, one thing that we discussed, and, and I bring this up because I've been desperate to drink a little whiskey while we talk. Um, I thought that was a thing that we do. It is. It's a thing that we do. We're supposed to, this is... Yep, that's I'm me. i sure t- my headphone cord is going to make it all the way to my <laughs> shelf, but I will try. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to see a microphone fall. Did you find something? Don't tell me what it is. I don't want to know. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. That's good to know the headphone wire reaches all the way to my whiskey shelf. That's when you know you've bought a good pair of headphones. (laughs) The best. I hope I'm not giving the game away, but when I poured that, I just noticed all the oil on it. No, you didn't. You didn't. I mean, maybe you think 
that it did. I don't know. Um, what one of the things I enjoyed as part of our conversation is is where flavors come from and and how we how we detect flavors and more importantly how we get used to certain flavors. Mm. Oh, right? this is something you and I encounter. Yeah. In our tasting notes and our selections. So I I did I did. Awkward. <laughs> Even the day. I had done a tasting. Uh, I had done a video for our new Croft and Gaia, which is uh, it's, it's Loch Lomond heavily peated whiskey. That's not what's in my glass, by the way. Um, and I described the nose, I described the palate, I described the finish. I, it was about a 10 minute video and which you got, you can find if you just seek out single cast nation on YouTube and you know, the crafting Gaia, there's also a Tobermory one. There's, there's a few of them, but throughout that review, I didn't mention peat once and the oh. barley has been peated to 45 PPM. And I actually received a, a Facebook message from a uh, nation member, Michael Bloom, who you know, and uh, he had said, really, this is peated? You didn't mention Pete once. <laughs> and, and it got me to thinking about how we can get past certain things. And, and Brian and I discussed that a little bit. I thought that was kind of interesting. When we were working at the distillery originally on making all the peated whiskeys, you know, one, you were sniffing the stuff all day. Mm-hmm. The smoke would go right up your nose while you were working all, all the time. And then you were distilling it and tasting the distillate. And then you were, you know, tasting the different barrels and all the different stuff. And so you got so used to being constantly exposed to peat smoke that after a while, you know, I remember we used to, you know, you'd go to like things like Optimore and like thermonuclear peat bombs. Yeah. And it would sort of taste normal. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, and I remember at that time, uh, I had, was teaching my dad uh, about whiskey because my dad had drank Johnny Walker his whole life. Okay. And, uh, and so my dad came over and I was walking him through like my bar. And I got to the Laphroaig and I was sort of pouring him a glass of Laphroaig and explaining this is like a really, really, really mild level of peating on it. It's mostly about apples and pears, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and my dad's looking at me like I'm crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And, uh, and then I switched to working on a whole bunch of research later post-reactor stage on um, bourbons and rye. And to me, when I first started drinking those, they all tasted like paint cutter. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's this, the ethyl acetate notes in the bourbons and rye was just huge, especially in the old stuff. When you get to like the 20-year-old bourbons, you know, they would just have this massive concentration of ethyl acetate in them. And, that, and that's all from the wood, right? Because mm-hmm. they're kiln-drying the staves and you get that through. Is that... Am I correct I in saying that? Have different sources, actually. So, okay. the, um, I mean, if we want to go, like, take a quick nerdy tangent, you, you get ethyl, uh, ethyl acetates formed by chemically binding acetic acid, which mm-hmm. is vinegar, um, to ethanol. And you get acetic acid from bacteria during the fermentation. You also get acetic acid from um, degrading hemocellulose in the wood. Okay. And you also can get acetic acid by oxidizing ethanol itself. Um, and you can get uh, acetic acid from biologically oxidizing ethanol itself. Okay. And so because of all of the breathing that takes place in the, in the climate in Kentucky, yeah. barrels are constantly reintroducing oxygen. Some of that may auto-oxidize a little bit of the ethanol. You also get um, bacteria that grow on the outside of the barrel or in the wood that will, that will eat the alcohol and auto-oxidize it into acetic acid. Oh, it gets wow. back into the barrel. Um, and you get degrading hemocellulose from all the new wood that sheds acetic acid into the barrel. And so all of those different sources of acetic acid then will sterify into ethyl acetate over time. So it's a, it sort of forms the backbone of American whiskey from a flavor point of view. Yeah. So when I started working on bourbons and rice from a research point of view, I was constantly tasting all of these different experiments and tasting all of the different control samples uh, of those. Mm-hmm. And I started, you know, after a while, instead of tasting like paint thinner, they started tasting like caramel and butterscotch and all these like amazing flavors. Yeah. And then one day I was like, I'm just going to go drink for fun, not work. And so I sat down and I poured myself a glass of Lafroy and took a sip of it after like a year of basically working on bourbon and rye all day. Yeah. And the minute I took the sip, I was like, holy crap, this is smoky. <laughs> you know? And I just realized like, oh, wait a minute. 
I had been drinking these so often and exposed to that flavor profile so much yeah. that my brain just started filtering out all the flavors of the pea and paying attention to everything else because that was the constant in my life. You and I have had this in writing our tasting notes for the website and, and for the label where we've said, oh yeah, there's, oh, there's a lot of chocolate on there. Oh, there's a lot of fresh cereal on there. Oh yeah, there's something floral in there. And we've invariably had to pause and say, but do you get any peat or do you get any smoke? <laughs> Is that something we should mention? Um, and I, I found myself doing it at tastings as well, where I've, I've identified the same types of things that you and I first identify. And then people put their nose in the glass and go, oh, <laughs> what's, what is that? Like, oh, are you getting peat on that? <laughs> is there smoke in there? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, why are you talking about pineapple? <laughs> I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> I sometimes forget. Once you really start digging into peat, this is. Oh, I see what you did there. Oh. You know did what? You see I, what you did there? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> digging into peat? No, I get it now. Oh, you just weren't doing it on purpose? Yeah, yeah, I just okay. wasn't doing it on purpose. <laughs> digging into peat. Um, but the beautiful thing about peated whiskeys, in my opinion, is that peat can be used to A, mask imperfections in a whiskey. Very true. Right? Um, yep. Not that that's your aim, but but in a way it's okay. But if you spend enough time with a peated whiskey, eventually that peat goes away. And you're you're able to, you know, just discover the soft underbelly, mm-hmm. right, of all those other flavor components. And then peat becomes, you know, rather than just the first thing you taste, but just another facet of that whiskey. So, A, it can be used to cover up things, but B, it can be used just as a flavoring component. And I think that's one of the things that you and I forget when we're writing our notes or leading our tastings, is that a quality that has become complementary for us still remains the first deliverable note yeah. uh, in a whiskey. It's, that's, honestly, that's why I enjoy doing the tastings and getting out there and seeing people who are not drinking peated spirit at cask strength day in and day out. <laughs> you and I have a little bit of an echo chamber going. Quite a bit, yeah. Thinking again to Pete as that that complimentary note. The reason I selected the the whiskey that I selected now, which by the way is our ten year old Tobermory, aka Lechig. Lovely. I selected this one because this is not Isla Pete, and so therefore you are getting. A completely different type of peated whiskey than you, than if you were to uh, have an Isla whiskey. When the Isla whiskeys, when they dry their barley, they're using peat from the island of Isla. When Tobermory or Ardmore or you know Glenglassa, any of these that are using peated barley, they're using peated barley where they've used Highland peat to uh, to dry the barley. So you're going to have a different flavor. And it got me to thinking back again to our conversation with with Brian, where you know, he was on a mission, he was on a, his own peat mission to discover different types of peat that had different types of vegetation that would offer up again complementary flavors to a whiskey. I still have some interesting peat lying around, but I wouldn't mind burning up. Uh, from strange sources that we never got around to using. I know there was one. There was one you said that had blueberries in it, but I think you used yeah. that for something, didn't you? Yeah, we did. There's a there's a few barrels still sitting there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the, that we're just leaving alone and letting just kind of do their thing. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's Saskatoon berry, peat, uh, and I never got a. I mean, that, that's a wild blueberry. They call it a Saskatoon berry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and uh, and I've always wanted to, but never got around to doing cranberries. Um, your your East Coast bogs are full of cranberries. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's a there's some cranberry peat out there. We have a we've got a local peat bog. I want to say ten miles away from me. 
mm-hmm. and you can it's right off the highway and uh you know it's it's as black as could be uh-huh. uh and part of it is is being used by um uh, I, I you know they they've got a greenhouse there you know they sell a lot of uh local produce and stuff like that but they're mm-hmm. they're using part of that peat bog for for growing for stuff yeah. yeah yeah it works really well for that um and uh, and also it's the you know there's ways you can get it without crossing the illegal mining laws that way um because if they're using it for farming and they have a need to like dig a trench for the backhoe yeah. for the purpose of creating like a water drainage thing you know yeah then sort of like work out a deal with them where you fill up a couple pickup truckloads when they while they're digging it out with a backhoe right. uh, and that's how you get access to it without running afoul of the um the mining laws um where there's a will there's a way yeah, no, I mean that was our strategy in the in the U.S. When you get to uh, the Canadian bogs, are different because they don't care. You can do whatever you want, okay. and and also we're American citizens, so we can always sort of like run home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> driving your U-Haul as fast as you can. From the- <laughs> I chose a whiskey that ties in a little bit with what Sturk had to say last week. Um, oh. I don't know what you're going to say. Something young. Oh, right. So so last week, David Sturk had said anybody could put some 1969 whiskey in a bottle and sell it. Um, The difficulty lies in selling a young whiskey. Mm -hmm. And he talked about his Bunahaven four-year-old that that he had great success with. And I actually pulled out our Colhoman four-year-old. you know, partly it connects with what David Sturk was saying about selling younger whiskey. And you and I, uh, we stood by the number four on this label Big and time. had a number of people say to us, oh, I won't drink four-year-old whiskey. Uh, whiskey begins at 12, uh, and that's the youngest. Um, <laughs> and it was like, oh, I'm sorry, you're missing a really good whiskey here. Uh, it also fit in with some of the flavors that, that were discussed with um Brian, <laughs> I just keep wanting to call him the mad scientist. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry, Brian. Uh, yeah, so some of the flavors that were discussed with Brian and, and this Colhoman four-year-old has one of our most famous label notes on it. Uh, people are forever quoting this to us. Um, a complex mixture of pine tar and spent shotgun shells, yet slightly floral. <laughs> uh, people love that absolutely love it so so that was good um and then just the final connection uh we bottled this july of 2012 and so we actually bottled this uh the same year that brian was establishing himself in california look at that it all it all comes so, back cheers to brian and cheers to episode number two yeah cheers to that just thinking about the misconceptions part of our podcast it's age, and does age equal quality? Yeah, it's one of those things that we certainly encounter when we're out and about, that age is better. One of the things I always say to people is, I can guarantee you one thing if you buy an older bottle. You'll spend more money. <laughs> the yeah. only thing I can guarantee you. Yeah. It won't necessarily be better because it's older. Right, right. Maybe a cracker. Might be amazing. You might be so happy you spent your money on it. Also might be a dud. Yeah. Also might be middle of the road. And that's why I really enjoy doing some of my tastings where I'll just put a a brown paper bag around one of our bottles because A, it makes me look like someone who just drinks on the corner. And and B, uh, and I'm not knocking that. Uh, but, with that. You know, but, well, actually, there is. Uh, but oh, judgment. Well, you know, uh, but but what that does is people. Uh, you know, maybe people may have an assumption that that whiskey, you know, in the bottle behind the paper bag is going to be younger. But if it's our two-year-old Westland and we pour it for them, they've never had Westland before. And I throw out the question, which is a loaded question, but I throw out the question, how old do you think it is? You know, what kind of cast, you know, what do you think is happening here? And more often than not, people will say 
it's got to be at least 10 years old, right? It's got to be 12 years old. And we've done that with our Kilhoman. And we've done that with Catoctin Creek, you know, four years old, three years old, two years old. And those that are thinking about it and going over the flavors and in their head as as they're tasting it, they'll say, wow, that's that tastes like an old whiskey, which, again, we're getting back to age because that's how we think. We think about age. But two-year-old whiskey can be just as good. If, if your mind equates 12-year-old to be good and you're tasting a two-year-old whiskey that's really good and you're saying, okay, 12 years old equals good, it's a good whiskey. So it gets back to that flavor. Tasting it blind, people say, that's fantastic. I, I'm so in love with that whiskey. I want to buy this and drink this whiskey all the time. Yeah. And then for our Westland, we show, hey, it's two years old. And some people, not all, some people suddenly don't like it. Even though 30 seconds before the reveal, they were in love with it. Mm. It's like, no, don't be so driven by the number, right? Don't be so driven by the process. You know, if you happen to have a reactor that you use, right? <laughs> don't, don't allow that to sway you when you already liked the juice that was in the glass. Yeah. Yeah, and this is why and this will be a little bit of a controversial statement, um, but so long as the pricing makes sense, yeah. I am pro-NAS. Okay. Because I'm trying to figure out why you thought that was controversial, but okay. Well, there are some people who just have a bee in their bonnet about NAS. Without a doubt. They want to see that age statement. You know, they want e- even even transparency, and that's why we will put a two-year-old on our bottle if it's, you know... You know, here in the U.S., the whiskey can be two years old, and it's you can call it whiskey. Um, you know, we are very transparent, but, you know, take Kilhoman Macker Bay, right? It's an NAS. They'll talk about the age statement, but they're going after a particular flavor profile for a standard product that you can get for $55 a bottle. And I think that's a fair price given what's in it, given the small amount of it, given the quality of it. And forget age, does it taste good? If the answer is yes, and it's not taking all of the bills out of your wallet, but but a uh, what you feel to be a reasonable amount, then go for it. Yeah, I'm afraid my response is not particularly good for a podcast. I just sat and nodded my head through everything you just said. <laughs> so <laughs> that That just happens all the time. All the time, all day the in, time. day out. Yeah. That's how all of our meetings go. Um, <laughs> I think for some people, there's a shorthand involved, where if you pull out the 25-year-old whiskey for your friend, that A, tells them that you know whiskey, mm-hmm. and B, tells them that they're valued in your life because they're sharing the good stuff with you. It's well, more difficult yeah. to do that when you've got a younger whiskey that you say, hey, I just love this. Yeah, give yeah. this a try. Tell me if yeah. you love it too. And that's a very special thing as well. Uh, for among whiskey drinkers. But I think there's a shorthand that we all communicate the best we can with other people, and that shorthand is useful. That's, yeah, no, that, that makes good sense. And and it gets back to what, what you said when we first started this conversation, that being the older whiskey is going to cost you more. That's the one thing we can guarantee. And when your friend comes over and you say, here's uh, our 28-year-old Bunahaban, let's enjoy this, you're saying, you're special to me. You know, I, I enjoy your company. Let's hang out. Having said that, when we're doing tastings, I'm going to put that first, mm-hmm. right? Or I'm going to yep. put our Glen Elgin 18-year-old first. Yep. And it's not necessarily because, all right, let's get this old one out of the way, or I'm going to treat you all to the oldest whiskey. This is, you know, this is how we're going to kick off our night. I mean, really, it gets it gets back to flavor. Those are yep. lighter in flavor. You start with the the lighter, more delicate stuff, and you end with peat. And it's it's really as simple as that. So it gets back to that to that flavor. And and when I, you know, when we talk to people about why we bottled a four year old, why we bottled a seventeen year old or a 13-year-old, you know, you're just taking a snapshot of that whiskey at its given time. And we're focused on the flavor 
first and foremost in the overall experience. The, the age doesn't have much bearing on why we select that cask. So, Very well said. Do you know what time it is, Jason? Is, is it time to get up? It's time to... Deep news. Speak ticker ticker. Extra extra. <laughs> How's the fax machine noise go? <laughs> I, I I appreciated what you put on our website under our fax number. <laughs> I think people really will try and contact us via fax. I hope so. So this is this is the news part of our segment, and I think that that we have. Something really fun to talk about. It's fun, historical, and unlike anything that has happened to date on Isla. And we are going to be a part of it. Why don't you take that over, Jason? (laughs) (laughs) Passing the buck. Go. We're very fortunate, I think, to have partnered with the Explorers Club in New York, uh, very famous club, Uh, includes some of the astronauts who stepped on the moon uh, as its members. And two of these Explorer Club members are going to do the first recorded swim around Isla in July of this year, 2017. And Whiskey Geek Tours is a sponsor of this endeavor. And what we're going to do is follow them around the island. They're going to stop at each distillery on the island uh, at the end of their swim. Some of their swims are as as little as four hours. Uh, Some of their swims are as long as six, six and a half hours. I want to say even a little longer than that. Even a little longer in some places, maybe even depending on the tides, uh, depending on whether they get pulled up in the nets of some fishing boats. Uh, That would be (laughs) awkward. Um, And once they come out the water, they're going to go to each of the distilleries around the island and collect some whiskey from said distillery. And they're going to collect it in a a cask, a wooden vessel. And it's going to go around the island with them uh, as they're doing their swim. And we're going to get to dine with celebrity chefs. We're going to be part of a recording that should be broadcast by National Geographic. Um, I was talking with uh, one of the, the explorers the other day, uh, one of our swimmers, and uh, and he was saying, yeah, they've already started looking at, at shots and angles uh, for where they're going to film on the beach, coming out to the distillery. Uh, really great to start hearing that part of the plan coming mm-hmm. together. Um, at the end of their week, uh, we as sponsors of the expedition will own the cask of whiskey that they've collected. From eight distilleries, uh, all eight island distilleries. Be a really, really fun uh, collection, a, a pretty unique little bottling. And uh, anybody who comes on tour with us is going to enjoy that bottle. Uh, it will be gifted to them as a tour goer. So not only will they have all the fun and the excitement of going around the island, seeing this unique expedition, this adventure, um, dining on beaches on Isla, dining on cliff tops on Isla. Uh, they also get this wonderful, wonderful keepsake that I, I think they'll be very proud of uh, in years to come. And then we've also talked about a little expedition of our own off the island that might get us into Campbellton, to the Cadenheads Warehouse, where we've got a, a unique tasting lined up there. Have you ever thought about going from Isla to Campbellton on a yacht, Joshua Haddon? I have, and I want to. <laughs> might just be in the cards so yeah there's there's a lot going on um you know here we are towards the end of february the thought that towards the actually today's february 21 uh, all goes according to plan we'll be on in scotland july 21 getting ready for the july 22nd beginning of this expedition yeah so all in all you've got two guys that are going to do an an eight day, a seven or eight day swim around the island, and we will be following them along, hitting each distillery along the way. So we we will uh, have some very very 
VIP behind-the-scenes tours uh, at these distilleries. We will have some of those celebrity chef dinners that we talked about. We'll even have a chance to, if, if some of our tour guests want to, have a chance to follow the swimmers along on kayak, which I think is very cool. I'm glad you added that in. That yeah. was one of the things that as soon as I stopped talking, I, uh, I wanted to have mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, there's also there's also a very interesting bit of this. I think the whole thing will be interesting, but they were telling us that when they swim the west side, mm. the west coast of Isla, there's really nothing between the west coast of Isla and Newfoundland uh, on the east coast of Canada. And so the tides are very violent. And if they were to swim somewhat close to the shore, they would get washed onto shore. Mm-hmm. It would then get spun around and they would get washed back out to sea again. And so they're actually going to do that swim in the the ocean portion rather than the tidal portion right. of the water there. And uh, what a thing to consider. <laughs> <laughs> Getting washed up on Macker Bay. Uh, it would really take the fun out of it, wouldn't it? But. Um, wow. Yeah. Meanwhile, we'll be busy drinking Macarbay while they're <laughs> swimming Macarbay. But you know, all of us, uh, all of us get busy doing what we're best at. <laughs> so let me sum up everything everything that we've said. We are, in conjunction with the Explorers Club, are following two swimmers around the first ever recorded swim around the island of Isla. During those eight days, we will be visiting all eight distilleries. The swimmers will be collecting whiskey from each and every distillery, filling into a quarter cask. As we're following them around, we will be treated to VIP tours of every distillery on the island. We will have dinners that are hosted by celebrity chefs. At the end of the tour, the swimmers will have a full quarter cask of whiskey that they're actually going to take to the Corps of Reckon um, whirlpool and they're going to dunk it into the whirlpool uh which is a bit of a callback to was it the witches or the druids of of the island they would wash their their clothes and reckon kind of a stretch seems like a stretch sounds amazing though but in the end we'll have about 120 or so of these bottles uh from that from that cask that that we'll have that'll be a single cast nation bottling and sometime during that, those seven or eight days, we will have a full day on Campbellton with Springbank and Cadden Heads, and we'll be, taking o- we'll be taken over there on a private yacht. That's a lot of stuff. It is. And the good news is we're already halfway sold out on tickets for the tour. That is true. Yeah, if anybody uh, listening is interested, it's a $6,000 tour. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know what that is in krona or francs or Euro. even pounds at this point, oh, given yeah. that the market is doing its own thing. Uh, but yeah, $6,000 uh, for all of those activities and to be part of something incredibly special. Yeah. Uh, a wonderful combination of whiskey adventure uh, and swim expedition. And all they have to do is get into Glasgow, fly into Glasgow, and we'll pick everybody up from there. And that $6,000 will cover all transportation, all accommodation, all food. The only thing that uh, our guests need to worry about are uh, personal purchases and uh, maybe extravagant whiskey bills. (laughs) (laughs) Other than that, everything is easy to do. We both know that. (laughs) Yeah, and I would say if anybody listening does have any questions about that, please reach out to us. Questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com since that's where you heard about this. Speaking of questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com, we we got some messages, and I am. It's nice to know that after our first podcast, we. People are reaching out to us, so that's cool. Uh, we received a message or, or an email, a facsimile. We did a not. question. <laughs> we received a question from uh, Jameson Colby, 
who is, uh, he's actually a single cast nation member. He's been a member for, uh, for a few years now. And his question is, hello, Joshua and Jason. I normally haven't opened single cast nation bottles the day I've had them delivered. I recently did. And one of them was your MGP light whiskeys. At first, all of my friends thought it had no nose and had an off taste. After it sat, I'm sorry, after it sat in our glass for a while, it opened up and we all agreed that you made a good choice for a single cask. Thank you. Thank you. When I've opened up the bottle later, the whiskey had been fine right from the bottle. In your experience, should you wait before you open up just delivered bottles? It's a very good question. It is a very good question. And it's, it's always a difficult one to answer because... I've got an easy answer. I don't know what you're talking about. Really? There's no way you can say everything all the time. It's not possible. <laughs> I, I think I have an answer, but I'm going to let you go on with your difficulty. <laughs> because <laughs> I think after a bottle's been in transport and you've had fluctuating temperatures in the back of a UPS van or, mm -hmm. or some, some delivery van, and then you bring it into your house. I think there's a very good chance that whiskey is still kind of not at, at opt not in its optimum position. Um, and so even without opening it, letting it sit on a shelf, gathering itself, I think is always advisable. I do think, and this is only from personal experience, whiskies at higher ABVs do better when they've been opened. Yeah. Has that been your experience, Joshua? That has definitely been my experience. You know, both of those whiskeys were really high ABV. I mean, we're, we're looking at 68, 69% alcohol, exactly. give or take. So they need to be opened up. They need to air out a little bit. That alcohol needs to, part of that alcohol simply needs to evaporate for you to start enjoying it. Now, what I would say, however, though, is you, you don't need to wait. I don't think anybody needs to wait once they receive a bottle. If you think about when that whiskey was bottled and how long it's been in our warehouse, you're looking at a few months. So it had been sitting around anyway. Specifically with this bottle, once you open it up, you pour your first dram or your first set of drams, you let it sit for a while, maybe even add a dash of water to open it up. It's going to take a little while for that for that whiskey to open. But now that you've poured whiskey from the bottle and oxygen is getting in, it's starting to oxidize, some of the alcohol is starting to evaporate, that whiskey is going to come into its own. Uh, so I don't think you need to wait. I think it could be great right out the gate or it could take a little while to open up in the bottle. But I think it's also difficult to know if the bottle did need to sit. If you got it from your delivery and you sat it on your shelf and opened for a couple of days, then you opened it, poured a dram, stuck your nose in it and said, oh, oh yeah, this is fine. Well, maybe it would have been fine two days ago as well. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing certain about it, which is why for me it's not an easy answer. Um, but I definitely agree. Once it's open and you've got a dram poured out of it, just as Jameson described with his group here, it does make a difference uh, to that slight uh, oxidation of the, the high alcohol spirit that's in that bottle. We also got an email this week from Nation member Jim Hendages, who reached out to the questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com email address to say, to ask, Dear Jason and Joshua, I'm thoroughly enjoying the MGP whiskey that came in, but... I've added a few drops of water. Is that okay? <laughs> so thanks for reaching out, Jim. <laughs> you, you, know, you don't need our permission, but I'm glad that you seek it. It's his whiskey uh, now, right? <laughs> he, he owns it. Yes. The whole thing is his. Um, yeah, as, as we've just been discussing, the MGP whiskey is 68, 69% alcohol. Um, if you're carefully adding drops of water, paying attention to how that changes the flavor, um, please go ahead. The fact that you say you're enjoying the whiskey with water in it 
that's music to our ears. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yes, we sell single cask, natural cask strength whiskey because we have said from day one, our members can add water. They can't take it out. So thanks for those two nation members writing in with questions. Yeah, thank you. And uh, if anybody has uh, further questions, please do reach out to us at questions at one nation under whiskey. Those two that did reach out to us, we'll be sure to follow up with you on the uh, promised samples. Yep. Well earned. Great questions. Yeah. Before we go, I wanted to thank uh, Brian Davis again for, for sitting down and and talking with us and sharing sharing knowledge sharing science dropping science is that what the kids say that's what they do they drop science yep (laughs) from the curriculum yes and uh that's it right is that it yep that's it we've brought another one nation under whiskey podcast to a close thanks joshua for the conversation Thanks to everybody who took the time to listen. We'll catch you on the third episode. All right. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.